Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast. This episode is monkey Q&A and monkey comments. Got question from monkey Nadim. Craig, monkey Craig had sent an awesome list of comments on a bunch of previous episodes and also got a great note from monkey Mike who I was actually on his podcast a while back, but thank you so much guys for sending those. I, I just, I love the back and forth and it, it makes, it helps me think better about the way I think. So again, this podcast for me, it's, it's, it's really, it's a conversation with the guests, but it's also a conversation with the monkey family. So I appreciate hearing your guys feedback and if you have questions, if you have comments on a show, send them our way. Info at monkey.co or actually the better one might be elders at monkey.co elders as in E L D E R S at monkey M O N K I I dot co send DMS on Instagram or at monkey.co. But yeah, so I just kind of, I address Nadim and then I address monkey Craig and then I address monkey Mike's comments. I was starting to get, my throat was starting to get a little dry towards the end. So I had to take a few water breaks and definitely jumbled a few of Mike's comments, but Hey, we'll just keep getting better and keep getting wilder. Please enjoy the show. And here we go. All right, monkeys, jumping right into it. I'm going to start with a note I got from Monkey Nadim over in Germany. And she sent this note. It sounded like she'd been having some rough nights at work. She was working these night shifts. I think she's on an ambulance, and it just sounds like a very intense, pretty gnarly job. Plus the night shift, man. That's just, um, you know, we're not uh, naturally nocturnal animals. So I think that just adds a whole nother, whole nother level of stress. But her question was basically... She would like some advice on how to keep oneself from getting caught up in the down spiral, both mentally and physically. And then she also adds, she doesn't want to switch jobs. She loves her job, but she wants to know how do you toughen your mind? How do you not let injustice get you down too much? And it's a great question, Adim. And I think, you know, I think what you're experiencing is very normal. And I think it's important to recognize that everyone has similar thoughts. So I know, I know when I'm personally in having these kind of darker times, harder times, it's, you can get in this mindset of, am I the only one that ever feels this way? But I think if you can recognize that, you know, you're not alone, that's some, that's always been somewhat comforting for me, but you know, you sent this note a while ago and I've been thinking about it. And you know, the conclusion I came to is one, I don't think you should listen on you should listen to me for specific life advice, but I think from a broader, higher level perspective, what I think might help you with just your mindset and maybe give you a framework to think is stoicism. And there's a great website. It's called dailystoic.com. I'm going to, this is a post they have and just, so what is stoicism? So this is from the daily stoic and I thought they did a really good job kind of defining it, but they say in its rightful place, stoicism is a tool in the pursuit of self-mastery, perseverance, and wisdom. It's something one uses to live a great life rather than some esoteric field of academic inquiry. So what I love about stoicism, it just, as you read through it, it's not like it's these, there are directives, but it's more of creating a framework for you to think within rather than giving you like specific what you should do. So this article has these nine, what they say, the nine exercises to get you started in stoicism. So if you're new to the concept, I'll, I'll put a link to this article in the show notes, but again, if you're new to the concept, this is just kind of a high level view and you can start to dive deeper and take what's useful and leave what is not. But these nine exercises to get you started, I'll just go through them real quick. So the first one is the dichotomy of control. And so as part of the Stoic philosophy, it's really important to kind of identify what you can change and what you can't, what you have influence over and what you do not. So basically it's, it's starting to identify it, right? Focus on the things you can change and then the things that you just, you can't, you can kind of 
just let them go, let it be water under the bridge. So that's one learning to identify that I think is it's a skill. It takes time, but once you do, it can really help you just kind of free your mind. Number two is journal. And this is something I've started to do a lot recently. And it's, it's ironic that I host a podcast, but I think I actually communicate better when I write. I just, I think my thoughts are a little more digested when they come out through the written word, especially when you write by hand. I think there's something about that. That's just a natural, more, more natural process than pounding on a keyboard. I think you guys have probably noticed my disdain for, I call it pounding keys. So I think journaling is a great way to just kind of help synthesize your, synthesize your thoughts. And it also gives you, it's something that you can look at kind of object objectively. So if you write something down and then you read it, you can kind of be like, gosh, is that you can kind of analyze your own thoughts and maybe even catch yourself trying to trick yourself. So it's a great tool. A lot of people like to journal in the morning. I've actually found it useful at night for just kind of getting thoughts out of my head and just making it easier to fall asleep. Honestly, especially man, if there's like a problem with the monkey biz or there's just something I'm trying to work through. If I write things down that it just, it's out, I can let it, you know, close the journal and let it just be for that night. So something to consider. Number three is practice misfortune. So the idea with this is like, you kind of, you, you intentionally practice the worst case scenario, or at least the downside so that you can realize it's not that bad. So a great example is just fasting. If you fast every once in a while, you understand what it feels like to not have food. So when you are in that situation, maybe out on the trail, on an adventure, you're not going to freak out if you don't have food for a few hours. So they, they dive deeper in here. Again, I'll link to this article so you can read more about it, but practicing was fortunate. Just to, again, another great mental exercise to kind of make you realize it's, it's not that bad. Number four, train perceptions. And from the article, the Stoics called this exercise, turning the obstacle upside down. And so I, there's also a great book by Ryan holiday. It's called the obstacle is the way. And there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. So it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's a very simple concept, but very complex to kind of digest. So how does something that stands in your way become the way? And that's something you kind of got to figure out and digest for yourself. But again, your perception has always been, um, or your perception of how you, how you see something is that's going to kind of what triggers emotions, whether they're negative or positive, just kind of freestyling out loud. But I remember when I was a, I was in college. So it was in between my junior and senior year. That was my first season as a wilderness ranger. And for me, you know, physical training, being in the weight room, being strong was very important. You know, I'm just, I'm not a big guy. So I needed, that was a big part of my success, I think. So when I, when I got the job and realized I was going to be out in the woods all summer, I knew I'd be in good conditioning shape, but I was concerned about my level of strength. So instead of kind of, I don't know, worrying about it, I just immediately went into problem solving mode and, you know, things worked out great, but it's all about how you, your perceptions are going to, again, trigger positive or negative emotions. So it's, it's a skill I think you can train. So something to think about. Okay. Number five, remember it's all ephemeral. So ephemeral meaning it's not permanent, right? This is a quote from Marcus Aurelius, Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died and the same thing happened to both. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about status and celebrities and all these things. And you, it's, it's just, it's interesting as a species, how we elevate people for different reasons that that on a surface level, it's like they're, they're better than you or they're, they're untouchable in some way, but you know, we're all, we're all headed in the same direction. So the more I've kind of met, it's, it's interesting. There's a quote, like never meet your heroes. And I think there's some truth to it in the sense of like, 
when you elevate these people and then you actually meet them, you realize, Oh, they're just, they're just people just like me. So I think again, that quote, all he's trying to say is, you know, wherever you're at now, it's not going to last. And wherever someone else is at, it's not going to last for them ever. So it's not worth dwelling on. Okay. Number six, take the view from above. Here's a Marcus Aurelius quote again. So how beautifully Plato put it. Whenever you want to talk about people, it's best to take a bird's eye view and see everything all at once of gatherings, armies, farms, weddings, and divorces, births, and deaths, noisy courtrooms, or silent spaces. Every foreign people, holidays, memorials, markets, all blended together and arranged in a pairing of opposites. And that's from Marcus Aurelius. And again, I think that's something I don't want to comment too much on because I'm not that well-versed in Stoicism, although I still would consider it something that I practice. But again, this is number six from the article, so you can check it out for yourself. Number seven, this is Momento Mori, which is essentially meditating on your own mortality. And a quote from Seneca is, let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. That's from Seneca. You know, I was listening to Joe Rogan. I think it was, it was a day or two ago, but he had Bill Burr on, who's a comedian, but Bill Burr was talking about these deathbed. I can't remember if it was like a video or what it was, but it was, it was essentially what had be what people said on their deathbed. And there was one, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it doesn't really matter. It's this famous, pretty successful person. And on his deathbed, he says so much wasted time. And man, that really struck a chord with me. You know, I've been doing these Thursday fight against technology posts on Instagram and man, when you see, I get that screen time report every week and it's like, you spent this much time on your phone. It's, it just, it really strikes me in my soul of just all the time that gets wasted thumbing at my phone and just looking at nonsense. So that's why, that's why I started the Thursday fight against technology. But man, hearing that, hearing that comment of so much time wasted on your deathbed, that's not something that I want. And, you know, I, if I take an honest look at just my journey through life, I know, I know there's so much time that's been wasted. So it's, it's like, how do you, it's kind of like the, the micro workouts. How do you create an environment where you don't waste time or how do you set up your day? How do you set up your life? So you're more productive, but also, you know, in a way that that's meaningful to you, you know, I, I think it'd be, I could spend 12, 16 hours a day in the office here, you know, working on monkey stuff, but then I wouldn't be spending time with my two daughters, my wife, my dog. And you know, how, what's that? What am I going to say on my deathbed in that scenario? So something to think about. And, you know, I think that memento more, that's a big part of stoicism and you know, it's just something you need to kind of consider for yourself. Okay. Number eight is, let's see, I got to make sure it's so pre medi. <laughs> I should, I should have practiced saying this before, but it's premeditatio malorum. And so this is, it's a stoic exercise. It's a stoic exercise of you basically kind of do this, this process of what could go wrong. You do, it's like, uh, in sports we used to do, you know, this visualization, it's like visualization, but for things that could go bad. And again, the idea is you mentally prepare for the downside or, you know, a negative action or whatever it is you mentally prepare for that. So when it does happen, it doesn't kind of surprise you or you can at least do that exercise and then think of how you would react in a more positive way. So again, I think it's a really useful exercise. Nadim, I think this could actually be something useful for your line of work as well. And perhaps you guys even have some sort of training in that. Okay. 
Number nine is Amor Fati. So I'm going to start with a quote from the wild man, Marcus Aurelius, godfather of Stoicism. The quote is, to love only what happens, what was destined, no greater harmony. And so there's also, the article talks about Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher. I'm sure pretty much every monkey has heard of him, but basically the concept is a love of fate and big part of stoicism. And again, it's something I think if you read the article, you'll, you'll understand a little bit more and just kind of accepting what happens and kind of letting go of control in a way. So Nadim, I hope this was useful. And again, I think, you know, for any monkeys that haven't at least kind of peeked behind the curtain at stoicism, I think it's something just to even if you look at it from a surface level, you don't need to read the whole meditations book by Marcus Aurelius or anything like that. But even if you look at it from a high level or a surface level, I think just understanding the framework and the, the general concepts of stoicism, I think it, it will add benefit to your life. So hopefully this helps. Okay. Moving on. Okay. I got an awesome note from the wild man, monkey Craig, He's out West. He sent a few notes. So shout out to Craig. Thanks for tuning into the show. Thanks for taking the time to write, man, just a really thoughtful response to the episodes you've been listening to. So I'm just going to kind of go through it, share your thoughts with the monkeys and I think everyone's going to enjoy hearing him. So Craig says monkey Earl sounds like a solid dude. I enjoy hearing that guy's perspectives. Shout out to wild man, Earl, the Arctic monkey up in Norway. And yeah, he's a, uh, you know, I don't, I need to, to, I need to have him tell me specifically how to refer to him, but he's, he's essentially a doctor. I know the education system over in Norway is different than what we have here, but he's, he's essentially a doctor and he's a psychologist and man, it's like every time I talk to that guy, I learn something new and he's just a deep thinker and really insightful. So I appreciate him sharing, sharing his thoughts with the monkeys and Sounds like you guys do too. This, uh, okay. Excuse me. So next, next comment from Craig is monkey. Dan mentioned briefly that he may be a bit ADD or ADHD. He says it's entirely possible that he may be high functioning ADD plus or minus the hyperactivity. Uh, Craig says when my wife and I started dating, she was the first one to put on my radar that I might be a bit ADD as well. She said I reminded her of the doc she was working with at the time who had started out practicing in emergency medicine because he needed that constant change in adrenaline. Anyway, it's never stopped me from being successful and it clearly hasn't stopped the Dan Meister. Well, that's debatable, but it might be a real thing to be aware of so we can play to our strengths while working on our potential weaknesses and thereby maximize our joy and wildness. While the monkey mind is doubtless a desirable thing, the monkey mind can be trickier to deal with. So for sure. So the monkey mind, I think he's referring to that. I, I think it's a Buddhist concept of, you know, when you're meditating, the monkey mind's always that chatter in the background. So it's trying to get rid of that. But yeah, you know, I, I read your note, Craig, and talked to my wife a little bit about it. And I don't know if, I don't know if I would be that she, my wife's a teacher, so she's, she's actually dealt with this quite a bit. I don't know if I would actually get diagnosed on this diagnosed with this, but I just think maybe it's a personality thing where, you know, that variety just keeps me energized or something like that. But yeah, it's definitely worth at least exploring. So I appreciate the thoughts. Craig also talks about, so more on the ADD, ADHD. So he read a book years ago that theorized that these traits, such as the ability to hyper-focus on an immersive sensory task, but also easily being distracted by changes in the environment. These were adaptive in a hunter-gatherer contact context, but became maladaptive in the agricultural, industrial, modern society. It's, it's an interesting theory. And you know what? I think I spent a lot of time out in the wild and definitely in a different mindset for sure. And, you know, specifically 
hunting, you do go into a very different mindset where you're hyper, hyper focused, but it's, it's like your periphery, your ears, your smell, everything is just, it's heightened and you do react very quickly to even these subtle changes, subtle movements, sounds, whatever. So it makes total sense. And it's certainly beneficial in the woods, but man, in a 10 by 10 foot office with, uh, yeah, maybe not so much. Okay. Moving on quick sip here. Okay. Moving on. Uh, Craig's going to comment on micro workouts. So he says, I agree. This is a pattern of movement practice that is likely more ancestrally and evolutionarily appropriate than conventional infrequent big block, possibly more intense workouts. Dan touched on this, but I think the key to pulling it off sustainably sustainably is low overhead. And so by this, he means any activity, including a workout that has the quote meat of the activity itself. And then the quote overhead that is needed to get it done. So a big box gym workout is high overhead because you need to get yourself to the gym, have a membership, maybe put on special clothes, do an extensive warm up, and have a plan that maximizes the time you have there. Maybe you need to wait for equipment, etc. Micro workouts should minimize the overhead of transportation, clothing, equipment setup and takedown, warm up and cool down, etc. The challenge comes in hitting that Goldilocks just right balance of the sufficient movement variety and complexity without getting bogged down in overly complex mental overhead of programming and getting into analysis paralysis territory. Great insight, man. And, you know, I think for the micro workouts, I really think it's all about environment. You know, if you have a pull-up bar or monkey bars or whatever in your door, if you've got your 360 set up, eventually if you've got your stoic, your isocore, whatever it may be, if you just create an environment where it makes it very easy to move, maybe you take a step away from your desk and you can instantly do push-ups or dips or rows or little core exercise. If you can make your office closer to an exterior door so it makes it easy to get out, you don't have to uh, sneak by a bunch of offices, whatever it is, It's I think it's all about, he makes such a good point of that overhead and how just, it's like with nutrition as well, where if you buy shitty food, you're going to eat shitty food. So with movement, with micro workouts, create the environment and you're just going to kind of naturally move more. And then, you know, he, he talked about the programming as well. That's something I've been doing posts on these where I'll, you know, maybe give a couplet or a triplet of exercises to do throughout the day. And I think I like that concept of just do, do, you know, two to three exercises today, as many times as you can, or as many times as it makes sense based on your work environment, et cetera. And I think that just, again, removes that overhead. But what, but what I want to take it to on the next level is I want to create like a, a larger macro program where you're looking at, you know, push, pull, hinge, extension, flexion, rotation, all these different planes of movement and how to create this really holistic micro workout program that you can do on top of these more focused training programs throughout the day. So it's like, you kind of have your, your workout, like your training, and then you'd have micro workouts or kind of baseline movement on top of that. So good points you bring up, man. Okay. Next he says it can be tough to program for oneself because we all have blind spots and tendencies. Even if we deliberately try to be aware of rounding out our areas of for improvement, it's always nice to get input and inspiration from others. It's the classic coach. It's the classic coach's dilemma. Every coach needs a coach. And man, when I've tried to program for myself, I'm pretty good at creating concepts or like a general strategy, but the finer details is where I, I struggle with for, for again, specifically programming for myself. I can create like a general plan as far as like if I'm doing an ultra run or whatever, I'm pretty good at that. Definitely good at making sure I get the work done, but man, the specifics would be so much easier and probably more effective to get from a coach that can see, you know, a truly objective picture of where I'm at and what I need to work on. So any coaches out there, let me know. All right. Next 
Craig says, lately in my own movement practice, after experimenting, oh, let me start that over. He says, he's kind of going to talk about what's going on in his own movement practice. So he says, after experimenting with the simple and sinister protocol, that's a strong first protocol. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it. He says, I also read Quick and the Dead when it came out, which Quick and the Dead is what I can't shut up about. He's been trying to take lessons from Strong First of the frequent sub-maximal training and apply them to a broader movement palette. I find that for me, an ultra-minimalist two-movement program leaves me craving more variety and long-term is likely to result in imbalances and injury. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree on that. So specifically in reference to Quick and the Dead, the program I'm doing, it's kettlebell swings and push-ups. And there, there is variety. So you're doing two hand swings, one hand swings, and then the kettlebell snatch. And then for push-ups, I alternate between plyo push-ups and knuckle push-ups. So there is some variety, but again, it's more or less the same movement. You're just kind of changing a, a little bit of the variety. So I, I 100% agree. You know, I think on a short-term level, it's fine. But if you start to take that out to like years definitely going to start to see some imbalances and yeah, there's, there's certainly a possibility of overuse injury. So short term, you know, I think maybe one to three months, maybe even out to maybe, maybe even out to six months, you know, you could do a program like that again, as long as you're making sure to one mix up the variety within the program. And then two also intensity. I think that's something that does get overlooked is you can have movement variety, but also a variety of intensity. I love these, man. I, I love this commenting on comments. It's uh it's a really fun exercise. So thanks Craig and any monkeys. If you have comments on past episodes, this episode, shoot them my way and we'll keep the conversation going. All right. So Craig also says specifically, I try to make the base of the movement period, that fundamental human movement, which is called walking. There is something primally satisfying about walking to work in particular, walking to provide sustenance for one's tribe. It's what humans do. I walked to work today. Shout out. Yeah. It's, uh, I would say walking, gosh, you know, um, when I had Logan shorts on, I think he said this, it was lying down cause we sleep and was it walking and then squatting were like the three most common movements among hunter gatherers. And it makes so much sense why just walking as much as possible is probably one of the best things you can do for your health. So, you know, prior to a hundred years ago, that's how most people got around was walking so it's just, it makes so much sense that the more you can walk, it's just, it's going to set that baseline. It's going to set a higher bar of your baseline movement. So you're just, again, if you're walking, you're moving way more. And I, I really believe there's something Logan actually mentioned this as well. And I, I need to research it more, which I'll keep going on the tangent here. I'm re-listening to that episode for like the third or fourth time now, taking a bunch of notes and I want to do it's probably going to be like a two or three part series of kind of reflecting back on all these points he made. So really excited about that episode. Cause I'm learning a ton diving deep on these. Where was I walking? So I know when I've been out hiking and I know monkey Dave and I, we've done some long runs that we do like these like business brainstorms and just the insights that come out when you're at that low level aerobic activity, the blood's flowing, the rhythm of your foot strikes, the way your body arms are swinging right and left. There's just something about it that stimulates thought like nothing else. So Mr. Money Mustache talks about this, but you know, there's, if you can create, there's like, well, let me take a step back. So there's creating the micro workout environment, right? So having your monkey bar set up, having your 360 set up, whatever it is in your kind of like micro environment, your office, your home, whatever. But then if you can create a macro environment, so if you can live somewhere that is more conducive to walking, you're going to walk more. You know, if you live in a, 
it's, it's actually interesting how if you live in a city, like I went to school in DC, I, I walked everywhere because one, I didn't have a car and two, it's like, it was almost faster to walk a few miles than it was to try and catch a cab or the subway or whatever. It's just like a convenience thing. So if you can make it convenient to walk, you're going to walk more. So something to think about, especially if you're moving, I know a lot of folks are <sighs> relocating now, which is strange to me, but I think, I think what we're seeing this exodus from the cities to these more, you know, maybe smaller towns, not necessarily rural, but smaller towns that might be a little more conducive to walking. So something to think about. Okay. Oh, uh, also what I wanted to add on that is, you know, I've been listening to Mark Bell. His podcast is Mark Bell's Power Project. And then Mark Sisson from Primal Endurance, Primal Kitchen, Mark's Daily Apple. He's been hammering this JFW just fucking walk. He's been hammering that mantra for years. So it's funny. It's, it's funny to me that walking has become like this kind of sexy and thing, but it's just, it makes so much sense. So walk folks, walk monkeys, bring your, bring a pocket monkey too. stop throwing around a tree, get some reps in, go on the monkey run or monkey walk. Okay. Craig goes on to say beyond that i.e. walking is what he was talking about. So for strength training, he's been playing with a push-pull-legs split. And he quotes Ido Portal saying, the hip craves intensity and the shoulder craves complexity. That's a great quote. I love it. And it, it really it makes sense, actually, if you think about, if you look at it from like an anatomy, the way the shoulder and arm moves in so many different directions and planes. And the hip, not that it isn't as mobile, but it's a little more of a north-south thing going on. So Craig says, I've been running with that concept. Upper body is mainly suspension workouts. Hello, monkey bars. And lower body is a mix of jump rope, barbell, kettlebell, carries, and sprints. That's a wild, potent blend, my man. I like that. Okay, next. He says, I've been reading and enjoying Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD. Quick side note, there's a great episode on Joe Rogan with Matt Walker. Matthew Walker, check it out. If you just, I'm sure if you just search Joe Rogan, Matthew Walker, it'll pop right up. And so Craig goes on to say, if you need any more convincing that sleep is the foundation of health, longevity, learning, and strength slash fitness, I highly recommend giving it a read. So from my side, I, I listened to him. I, I might've listened to him on a few podcasts. Now I listened to the man talk, Matthew Walker, super smart guy makes just a really good case for sleep. Not that I was against it, but I'm sure the book takes a deeper dive. So it's definitely on my list. Okay. Mm. A couple more notes here. Okay. So Craig said, I was interested in hearing Dan's thoughts on forestry. He agrees that wildfire has long been a natural part of Western North American forest ecosystems and that centuries of European American interactions and policies have resulted in an unnatural and unstable equilibrium. I was living in Eastern Washington state a few years ago and experienced the worst fire season there in recorded history. Mycologist Paul Stamets, actually this guy used to work as a logger. He has an interesting discussion on responsible forest management in his excellent book, Mycelium Running, that broadened my thinking on the subject. So yeah, you know, I, so I was a wilderness ranger and then I was a wildland firefighter for two seasons. And then I went back for two more seasons of wilderness. And, you know, I, fire was great. The camaraderie being on the crew, it was just, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we, we had PT physical training every day. So you're getting paid to work out. You know, everyone on the crew was awesome. My bosses were rad. It was just, it was such a good time where I worked was beautiful. And, you know, you're outside in the, in the wild all day. It was great. And it's kind of this natural thing. You know, I was 22, 23 and everyone you talk to that's fighting fire at that time, they're like, yeah, I'm going to jump talking about smoke jumping. And it was something, you know, I, it, it's kind of like the Navy seals of firefighting, wildland firefighting at least. 
And as I started to learn more about forest ecology and the history of fire suppression, I realized that kind of it, it, it wasn't a healthy part. Suppressing every fire was not a natural, nor was it healthy for the forest ecosystem. And it's not to say you shouldn't put out fires that are going to burn down people's homes. And there's definitely something to be said about, you know, we use wood as a renewable resource, which I think that's a legitimate use and suppressing fires of areas that we would use for this, this wood is I think reasonable, but I think it's just a across the board sweeping policy of all fires go out. That's just, um, I just don't think it makes sense. And what, what is, what is good is in wilderness areas. So just a little, little deeper dive on land management, but there's, so there's like national forest and then there's wilderness. There's also national parks and there's also wilderness within national parks. So now let's see, I'm, I'm getting, I don't want to make this confusing, but you can essentially have like regular, typically the way it works is a wilderness is bounded by regular like forest service land or for a national park, the wilderness in a national park is kind of bounded by like regular national park land. So a great example is like, you know, Yellowstone, you have the road that's not wilderness, right? But you can park at a trailhead and hike into wilderness, which just it's just different rules and regulations and it's just managed differently. But most of national parks are wilderness. And then again, national forest is, it can kind of be both. You can have like a kind of a core of wilderness bounded or surrounded by national forest land. But typically the way it works is just your kind of regular national forest land. If there's a fire, those are typically suppressed across the board versus wilderness. There's more of a let it burn policy. So wilderness, because of the land designation, the the land managers typically let fires that are started naturally, i.e. by lightning, they'll let those burn. So the challenge is it becomes a political thing, right? People don't it sucks having smoke all summer. I mean, this last summer here in Colorado was such a bummer. It was, I mean, you could like, you could like eat the air. It was so thick. You could like take a bite out of the smoke and man, I've been on fires where it's like, I remember one, you would take a, I would take a breath. Smoke was so thick. I would take a breath and then like dry heave, take another breath, dry heave. It was an extremely terrifying and horrible feeling. But where I'm going with this is there's just a lot of factors that have to do with fire and forest management. And there's a lot of kind of public input that the land managers have to deal with. So, you know, for example, doing prescribed burns, it creates smoke. Wildfires also create smoke. The benefit of prescribed burns is you're going to reduce the, hopefully you're going to reduce the intensity and likelihood of these huge mega fires, which they're just, those aren't really natural pre fire suppression. I'm sure they occurred in just, you know, random areas where, where fuel built up, but essentially these areas where there's been a lot of suppression, you have all this fuel. So all these trees that have died over the years and fallen that never burned, you have this huge pile of buildup. And then when it, when it dries out or whatever happens, then it just torches. So it's kind of this, it's this double-edged sword where, you know, you have essentially an undereducated public that doesn't want smoke, but the public also doesn't realize that you need smoke to prevent even more smoke. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not the best resource on this, but I have a little bit more of an inside look on just how things are managed and how things are done from both the wilderness side and then the suppression side. So hopefully there'll be some change. And I, I know there was, there was, um, these fire crews, they were back when I was, this was like 2009, 2010, but they called them fire use modules. So these were crews specifically used for fires that were under like a let it burn protocol. So they were just kind of shepherding the fire versus putting it out. And I, it sounded like that's kind of the direction that wildland fire management was going, but 
you know, as any political process, it's going to take time. Okay. And the last note from Craig is regarding personal finances. He says, I also enjoy Mr. Money Mustache's stuff from time to time. For a totally different perspective, but equally engaging read, I highly recommend the book, The Man Who Quit Money by Mark Sundin. So that's a, uh, that title is super catchy. I looked it up and so basically there's this guy, his name is, oh man, I want to get it right. His name is, let's just take a pause here while I, uh, actually type and search it for here. So the man who quit money. Okay. 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 So the author is Mark Sundin. The book is about a guy named Daniel Suelo, S-U-E-L-O. Suelo? Suelo. So this dude essentially like just tossed his life savings in a phone booth and went and lived out in a cave in the Utah desert. And he makes a point of saying that he didn't, he didn't take, you know, he wasn't like living off food stamps or anything like that. He wasn't trying to like belittle people for doing that. He just wanted to make, make sure people knew he wasn't like promoting this lifestyle, you know, kind of sucking off taxpayers or whatever. But I haven't read the book, but man, it's, <laughs> I told Craig this, but this is one of those books that I got to be careful with what I read. Cause I can't unread it. And there's a time in my life where as mid twenties, I was single you know, I was working seasonally and it would have been very easy. And I was actually even on this path, you know, my, basically my plan was to work during the summer for either fight fire or work in the wilderness, climb all fall. And then I was actually going to try and go to nursing school and then just work like a travel nurse job in the winter and then travel again in the spring, which I would have, it's probably would have been really fun. And and all that. But I think, well, I, I don't think I know for sure I made the right decision, but man, there's just that wanderlust and that desire for just that eternal adventure. Just, it doesn't go away. So I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to read the book and I actually, I want to reach out to Daniel Swallow and see if I can get him on the podcast. That would be an awesome conversation. So more on that. And then shout out Craig, uh, he ends his note with, I really like this. It's, uh, take what's useful, discard the rest. That's Bruce Lee, baby. So yeah, thanks Craig. I appreciate the note, man. And uh, again, monkeys, if you're listening to this, if you have thoughts, send them my way. Okay. And then the last, let me find this here. I had it pulled up. So I got another note from a monkey. Mike, Monkey Mike. And I was actually on his podcast, which was fun. But he sent some notes. This was a little while ago, but I wanted to go through them because there was some fun stuff. So I need some water real quick. Man, the air, Colorado air is dry, which is great because when it's cold, you don't feel it. But running my mouth for 41 minutes and 48 seconds now, it, uh, it can dry out. Okay, from... Wild man, monkey Mike. So his first comment is, have you heard anything about the Pomodoro technique? So it's a time management, getting things done methodology that I've dabbled with over time. And every time I do, I find myself being more productive, but then I let it slide. You can Google it. But the short idea is that you work in specific focused chunks of 25 minutes followed by five minute breaks. The idea is that you break your day into these chunks that they call Pomodoros. And after you've done four of them, you take a longer break, usually like 20 minutes. And there's a bunch of varieties, but you kind of get the basic concept. And I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I bought these sand timers or hourglasses. It's one is like 45, 50 minutes, depending on how the, excuse me, how the sand is kind of compacted in it. But I timed it. It was like, 48 minutes or something like that. So I'll do like this 45, 48 minute work sesh, take a break, drop down to this 
in a squat, go outside, do some running drills, do a plank, do push-ups, whatever. But I really like the analog device versus like an alarm going off on my phone. I think, you know, even like uh, social media timers I put on where it's, just, you know, on the iPhone, you can set like a limit to apps. I'm constantly just extending it and it just, it's, it's totally worthless in, in that specific use case. But I really like the hourglass timer. There's just something, the tactile, there's no beep. And there's something too. I think if you're in a workflow, like, you know, if I'm writing something creative, especially if you're in this flow state, like you don't want this alarm going off, interrupting you. I, I, I think what works for me is kind of using the hourglass timer as like a reference you know, if I, if it's not totally completed, I'm just in a funk, I can, you know, ditch out a little early or if I'm really vibing, I can just keep going. And then once I finish that task, move on. I think that's another way you could actually approach it is, you know, go by task. Like if you're sending emails or I don't know, writing code or whatever you happen to be doing, you can like kind of figure out, okay, I need to do this much of this task and then I can take a break. So I, I think there's something about like completing something and then taking a break that that's useful as well. So something to think about. Okay. So Mike goes to add. So the core idea is that it really helps you focus when you have a 25 minute chunk of time so that it's kind of that, um, urgency, right? So then you have the five minutes break, excuse me. And then you have a five minute break and li listening to me talk about micro workouts. I've been thinking maybe I'm going to try Pomodoro again. And then use the five minute breaks as short, quick workout breaks and see how it goes. Yeah. You know, the, the time scarcity, I think that's super useful. And actually it's <laughs> Tim Ferriss talks about this a little bit, but I'm sure I was, man, this is something I hate to admit, but I procrastinated so bad in college, especially with writing papers, but that time crunch it, it, it forced you to get stuff done and focus on what was important. So I think if you can kind of create these artificial blocks of time scarcity, it can help you focus and not, not actually bring it down to the wire where you're, you're truly strapped for time and under much more stress. So I think it's kind of a great little hack there for lack of a better word. Okay. Number two from Mike, he says, you mentioned playing chess in the queen's gambit, which was excellent. Gosh, that was such a good show. I know you've got very young kids and mine are a few years older, but what got me back into chess was that my older son really got into it in kindergarten. We've gone through a bunch of different chess books with varying degrees of quality, but by far the best was power chess for kids. It turned my son into an amazing player. He regularly beats me though. I can get him maybe one out of every five matches, but reading it helped me better understand almost everything else about chess approaches and tactics, such as all those other books that weren't useful before. And now much more. And I'm totally botching this. Let me start that over. So he says it turned my son into an amazing player, but reading it helped me better understand almost everything else about chess approaches and tactics such that all those other books that weren't useful before are now much more useful. Okay. I get what he's saying. So basically this book helped him understand the other books he'd read. Okay. Sorry, sorry. My reading comprehension's off. Okay. Mike goes on to say, I think from what I remember, your daughters are too young for it now, but something to check out when they're a little older, if they show an interest. Yeah. You know, I, for me, chess, I, I know like the rules and I know the moves and all that, but it's like those strategies and stuff, you know, the queen's gambit is they're constantly talking about all these strategies. That's something that, you know, I basically haven't looked at since elementary school. So I'm sure my daughters will beat me in like a year, but it will be fun to revisit those. Okay. And yeah, last note from Mike is he hadn't heard of on Atama or tack, which these are games that I talked about on a podcast with the wild man, monkey, Richard Muholland. But Mike goes on to say, if you're looking for another simple strategy game that likely fits into that theme, check out Santorini S A N T O R I N I Santorini. 
I think the, <laughs> he says the branding on the game is terrible, but it looks like something very, very different than what it is. And I checked it out online. It, it has the feel of some sort of ancient game in which the premise is very simple when you're trying to build up three levels high and then getting one of your two tokens on top of the structure. But the more I played, the more chess-like I realized it was. Simple setup, simple board, but the strategy and tactics are endless and perplexing. And like, you just, you can't get over the branding, but because it looks like such a different style of game with the Greek gods framing. It also comes with advanced rules that include all sorts of weird things with Greek gods, but Mike's suggestion is to best ignore them entirely and just play the base version. So yeah, I checked that out and I haven't purchased any of these full disclosure, but my wife loves games. I'm sure my daughters will. And you know, I like the, what I like about, you know, something like chess, for example, is there's so many variations and it's like every game is different versus, you know, some of these other games where it starts to get a little predictable. So this was, man, this might be the longest solo show I've ever done. I should practice reading through uh, Mike's notes specifically, but thanks for dealing with those. But yeah, monkeys, thank you for sending these thoughts, these comments, these insights. You know, the going back and forth, it helps me. It personally helps me just kind of examine my own comments, my own thoughts on just a deeper level. And, you know, it just makes me think a little more critically, you know, putting this stuff out there. It's like, I don't want to put out nonsense. And, you know, sometimes I might not have totally thought something through and getting the feedback helps me either be like, okay, yeah, that was good. Or man, you know, I never thought of it that way. So it's just the constant journey, the constant exploration. And I appreciate you monkeys being a part of that journey. So thanks so much to everyone. And please help spread the good word of the wild, share the podcast with your friends, with your family. You can post it on social media. I think if you use the pod bean app, I think you can record little audio clips and then text those to people or post it or whatever. So help us spread the good word of the wild. And also if you're enjoying the show, I would be eternally grateful if you could leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It just helps us get up higher in the rankings. And like I said, it helps spread the good word of the wild. Thank you monkeys for tuning in much love. I'll see you guys out there.